All right, turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 32 through 516. Now, I debated all week, how in the world am I going to do what I told you I would do last week, which is when you look at Ananias and Sapphira, is this a paradigm of the normal Christian experience? In other words, can you expect these kind of divine judgments breaking in in our lives? Can we expect that? Uh, why is this happening to them, and, and does it appear to not happen as often today? And I wondered, well, I said I was going to do a part two, and I'll work it in. And as I looked at part two, uh, there is no natural way to do it. So I just got to tell you what the answer is. Here's the answer. We know that Ananias and Sapphira uh, had a divine intrusion of God's holiness toward their sin happen instantaneously at that moment. Well, what just took place? Well, the answer, what I want you to see is in verse 12, 512. This is the interpretation of what just happened. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by what? By whose hands? The hands of the apostles. Now, here's where the two lenses of Acts diverge. How do you see the apostles? Do you see the apostolic office as a unique office? By the hands of the apostles. Or do you see the apostolic office as a unique office? Universal. And this is what I say to my brothers who say that it's a universal office. Well, if it's a universal office and we like the positive stuff of the signs and the wonders, where's your divine judgments too? I don't see you striking anyone dead lately. What we have here is, remember, the apostles were chosen in the very first chapter. There had to be 12. It was a major deal. That's why we spent time on it. And these 12 were chosen, and they had to have seen the resurrection. Not only that, they had to have been with Jesus from the time of John the Baptist. And so what we have in the apostles is Jesus directly working on earth through them. They're an apostolic witness. We could say this. It's like the word of God was where they were. So when the apostles are walking and ministering, the word of God is walking and ministering. Why? Because when they leave the scene, it's their written testimony by which Jesus now works through and mediates his presence and his gifts to his people. Do you see that? So the apostles, when they were physically here, they were witnesses of Jesus. They were witnesses of the resurrection. There's this unique stuff going on with them because Jesus is actually reigning in heaven and working through them, mediating his work through them to build the church. And then when they're done, they write down the words that testify about Jesus And it's that word that you now have in your hands, which is the means by which Jesus directly works in this world's realm. Do you see that? No one has this gift, but if you don't have if you have the other positive signs and wonders gift, you got to have this one, too. Okay, so that's my short answer. Now, can we get on to today? All right, let's do that now on paper. Our team, our senior year, was supposed to win the district and win the state, or go on to the state at least. We're supposed to win the district. So on paper, we looked real good. We worked hard, starting in the spring and through the summer, all the way into the fall. We pushed ourselves harder, made ourselves go stronger, trying to get 
harder bodies, harder minds, tougher, faster as a team. The coaches were united. The players were united. District on to state, district on to state. And we've done a really good job at working hard. In fact, we got into the first of the season. We just started rolling over teams, cruising through the season, as was expected. Coaches got excited. Players got excited. Even the town was getting excited. And then we had set on our schedule was that crosstown rival that we were waiting for. And the night before the game, I don't think a player slept. This was the toughest team in our schedule and the only team that would keep us from our goals that we were all united around. Well, it was a heavyweight fight right from the beginning. As the two teams took the field right at the beginning, we were stretching in our stretching lanes, and that team came running through our stretching lanes, trying to intimidate us. A bunch of their guys were mouthing off, and someone who will remain nameless mouthed back. (laughs) It was heated. And a 44-man brawl almost started right before the game. It was so intense that the coach pulled this nameless person who's on the kickoff team off the kickoff team to try to settle things down a little bit. Very heated. Well, the game went on just like it started. Very physical. Hits after the whistle. I mean, it was, it was physical. But we came up short. Our dreams, our vision crushed. Won't win district. We won't go on to state. Now, on Monday, we had practice as usual, and heads were lower than usual. Hearts were sinking even deeper. So much so that our starting nose guard and our offensive center, in the middle of our stretching and warming up, just sat in the center of the field and he refused to participate. He kept mumbling, our season's over, our season's over. The coaches got furious. And all of a sudden, this poison starts working through the team. Coaches getting angry. Players frustrated, now uncertain. Many players, their hearts had sunk even lower. He'd go through the drills and he hardly participated. It was just half speed. Season's over. And you could just feel the poison spreading through the team. This unified team... This clear, gold-oriented team that had worked since the season ended a year before, worked through the off-season, in the spring, during the summer, the unity was gone just like that. Because one teammate quit the team. And it was over. I want you to look at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. How many? 20%? 30%? Maybe 90%? The full number were one heart and one soul. You know the statistic today. The statistic today is the 80-20 rule. 20% of the church does 80% of the teamwork. In the first church, everyone did it. The full number, one heart, one soul. Don't miss that. Look at verse 32. No one quit the team. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. You know what's interesting about that word common? It's koina. Common, koina. It's the root word in another word, which is what? Koinonia, which is fellowship. Common 
is the the heart of fellowship. Being a team is the heart of fellowship. So fellowship, community, it's being on the same team. Now, the first church saw themselves not as individuals. They didn't see themselves as individuals pursuing God, individuals pursuing holiness and growth and grace. They didn't see themselves as individuals trying to get this Christian life figured out. They didn't even see themselves as trying to have an impact for God and glorifying God as individuals. They didn't even see themselves in the way they hung on to the things that God had given them temporally. They didn't see themselves as individuals. They saw themselves as a team. We are a team. As well, the early church saw themselves. Now, true biblical fellowship right here in this passage on display. Everyone wants to get back to the first church. What was the first church like? We want to capture the secrets of the first church. If we capture the secrets of the first church, we'll get what the Christian life is supposed to be. That's the way it's. It's taught today. Well, here's the way it was back then. They were on the same team. If you were an individual, it would be like this. Be a good teammate. Don't be a bad teammate. Don't quit the team. Now, how's your fellowship? I'm going to hit us right at the beginning here. Because we've got to get, in a sense, hit with the law so that we're ready for the grace in this passage. How is your fellowship? How's your teamwork? How's mine? Are you a good teammate? Are you? Or have you quit the team? Do you love the team? Warts and all. We all get together. We're imperfect. We're sinful. We bring in blind spots. We offend each other. We miscommunicate. We say hurtful things to each other. Paul says, stop to the church in Ephesus. Stop biting and devouring each other. Stop doing that. That's what we do. Have you quit the team because of it? Because so-and-so sinned against you and hurt you. Are you tearing down the team? In other words, is your stance towards the team, the church, suspicious? In other words, you think of the the pastor and you're suspicious. You think of the leadership of the team and you're suspicious. You think of another teammate in the team and you're suspicious of them. Is that how you relate to the team? Are you in disagreement with the vision of the team, of the church? Notice it says here, one heart, one soul. Everyone was on board. Does that mean there should be no disagreement over the vision of the team? The team? No, I'm not saying that. Of course there's always disagreement. Not everybody agrees with the vision of the church. But, what do you do with your disagreement? Do you trust God that He works through offices that He set up? Or do you doubt God and distrust those folks that are in Him? See the difference here? Ah, this is touchy stuff. Oh, it's touchy for me to say. Touchy stuff. But it was just as touchy for the first church. Their situation, their circumstances, maybe a little different. They wore different clothing. They didn't have Nike shocks. They had sandals. But they had the same hearts. 
And they had to wrestle with the same struggles. And they had to live with the person next to them too. So how in the world did the first church do it? How did they live like a team? How did they do that? How did they say, you go, we go? I would hope, and I hope, that the Lord can recuperate what goes on in sports and what goes on in the military, that it would happen in the church. I think one of my, one of my pet peeves is the church is that it's become so feminine that the guys are leaving. I think teamwork is a way that God calls us back into the church, men. We're a team, and we're on the same team. Let's stand for the hearing of God's Word. I'm going to start at chapter 4. I'm going to hit 32. Yeah, and we'll just read everything we read last time so you get the context of what we're doing here. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I want us to read this together. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph... Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it still not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you've lied to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down, breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard it. Young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, the interpretation, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow... Remember, picture the Word of God moving. If you picture that this is the Word of God in physical form, about ready to be in scripturated form, it begins to make a little more sense. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated.
Let's pray. Ask the Lord to bless our further hearing of His Word. Lord, we thank You that Your Word is exalted above all things. And we thank You that Jesus is the Word of God. So even now, O Jesus, the Word of God, and Holy Spirit, You breathed and inspired the written Word that's right here before us. Would You ride the wind of Your Word into our hearts today? Lord of glory, unleash Your Spirit. Do what only You can do in me and in all of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this passage is high drama. Remember, this is high drama. Drama of the highest sorts. You have, you have someone who sees into the hearts of two that come before him, diagnoses it quickly, and the invasion of holiness happens. High drama. This comes at us in two levels, this high drama, doesn't it? It comes with the drama itself, and then it comes with the stage that the drama walks on. Now, last week, we looked at the drama itself. And the drama was the point of the text, remember? And the point of the text was found in verse 5, and the point of the text was found in verse 11, the great fear. We put it this way. When they heard holiness, they feared. So, if you want to fear God, and remember fearing God, there's two things to fear. There's trusting Him and fearing Him. They are the appropriate Christian responses to God. Fearing Him because of His holiness and His majesty. Trusting Him because of His grace and His goodness. So, it's this trembling trust, right, that comes together. Now, we put the point and a little more prickiness, and we called it shock your senses with His holiness. That was the point last week. Now, this point is moving around on the stage. It prowls around on the stage. The stage that this point of shock your senses with His holiness, the drama of the text, the stage is the sub-point. And it's the community focus that we're going to look at today. So, we're going to look at the sub-point of the main point. Are you with me? I want to make sure we're, we're getting that in the text. So we moved to a sub-point of hearing holiness to fear God or shock your senses with holiness. Okay? All right, here's our sub-point. And it's directed at the church throughout history, and it's this. Live like a team. Now, what are we going to do? Okay, that's great. Live like a team. Close your Bibles. We're out of here. Well, we've got to fill that out a little bit. And we've got to... We've got to hear it like we mean it. I mean, when we leave here, it's like you want to come up here and we all want to put our hands in here. And we want to go, ready? Right. And we want to get out of here as a team. If we don't feel that, it might be part of my responsibility. But I'll put all that on God. Okay. So we're going to look at live like a team. All right. A family invites some people to dinner. Now at the table, the hospitable wife turned to her six-year-old daughter and said, Honey, would you like to say the blessing? And the six-year-old girl didn't know what to say, so she said to her mom, Mommy, I don't know what to say. And Mommy said, Well, just say what you hear Mommy saying. (laughs) The daughter bowed her head and prayed, Oh, Lord, Why on earth did I invite all these people? (laughs) 
Now, we all know this, this is not living like a team. John, you know that, right, brother? That's not living like a team. No, that's not living like a team. But there's another aspect in this passage that's unfortunately been construed that it is living like a team. And you know what that is? Christian communalism. That's not living like a team. Christian communalism is putting all your possessions, all your private property, place them in the care of the apostles, and they do with them as they see is good for the community as a whole. And so the the logistic or the implication is, well, today I'm the apostle, and you will bring all your private property to me, to the leadership of the church, and we'll take care of it for you. We'll take real good care of it for you. Now, I want to respond to that very, very quickly, just so you understand. There are many different Christian sects that have separated. That's S-E-C-T-S. Sects that have separated. They have separated themselves. They become separatistic societies. They've communed. They put all their possessions, private possessions, into a community pot under the care of certain leaders. And that's how they live. And this is not how you live as a team, according to this passage. Number one, here's my first quick argument. They took the Lord's Supper and meals together where? Earlier in chapter 2. In their homes. So how can you have a home if you don't have a home? It says day by day they took and broke bread together, communion as well as a meal together in their homes. Also, when you look at verse 34, it should be read, people, as many as were, people, as many as were wealthy and had multiple estates. See, the point is that there were wealthy believers, just like there are wealthy believers today, and that's okay. And these wealthy believers had multiple estates. And they sold them, as many as who are in this category, sold their estates, their lands, what? As, as many as who had need. That's why we have in verse 2, or chapter 2, verse 45 says, the believers were selling their lands as any had need. And then immediately, what do we give in the example of Barnabas? Well, he's one of them. And he sells one of his lands. And uses the proceeds. And then we have a bad example, but they were too. Ananias and Sapphira. Do you see how this works? All right. The issue here is a heart attitude toward God with your private property, not the abandonment of private property. This is not the beginning of Christian socialism. This is not the beginning of, okay, let's support communism. It's not that at all. It's a heart attitude. One last thing, just so we get it. I just saw it in my notes. Verse 4, the rebuke to Ananias and Sapphira. Look what the, the rebuke was. I mean, Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? I mean, it's your stuff. I have no right to demand it from you, and I'm an apostle. The church has no right to demand it from you. It's yours. It was given by God. Look with the fall of the logic. And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Ananias, the issue is, keep reading, you lied to God. You sold it and you pretended that all that you got for it, you gave to the church. And you didn't tell the truth. 
That's the issue here. Now, Johnson, a New Testament scholar, points this out. He says, in some ways, mandatory communalism is an easier thing. It's the easiest thing to do. I mean, let's look. I mean, how do you measure progress? How do you measure you're doing well in an area? Well, if you have external measuring points, if you have external coercion, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to get the result that you want. While the heart is a little more trickier. The heart's more challenging. The heart's more difficult. External conformity of just selling your stuff and letting someone else take care of it. Gosh, sometimes that sounds awfully good to me. The stress of possessions, wrestling with your conscience over possessions, what to give, how to use it, all that is a lot more difficult than, here you go, why don't you take care of it for me? Okay? The average member in a communal life is very simplified and it's a very controlled life. The weight of responsibility isn't on them, it's on a few people. Okay? Johnson says, Acts points to a more difficult form of financial fellowship. It probes our motives and never lets us shift responsibility to others. The generosity extolled here is not prompted by external coercion or peer pressure. That's probably what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. They wanted to look good. It wasn't prompted by that, but prompted by an inner compulsion of grateful love. Now that's, that's more challenging. To live as a team is not Christian communalism. It's much more challenging than that. It's much more demanding than that. You know what it is? To live as a team is a generous heart. Relationally, a generous heart. That's why Barnabas is called a son of encouragement, relationally. And then he sells his land materially. He's generous too. Do you see the point here? The point here is a generous heart. and An overflowing heart. that has to give. Look at verses 34 and 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So here's our point. Our point is live like a team. We're going to fill it out a little bit. Live like a team with a generous heart. That's the point. Now, what does this practically look like? How does this come crashing into our lives? Here's what it looks like. There's two key phrases. Verse 34, there's not a needy person among them. Look at verse 35, as any had need. First, it looks like meeting the relational and material needs of individuals on the team. So practically speaking, it means meeting the relational material needs of individuals on the team. Practically speaking, it means meeting the relational and material needs of the team itself, the mission and the ministry of the church. That's what it looks like practically. Let's break it down a little bit. It looks like this. She's exhausted. She sits down. She turns on her favorite sporting event. She has her favorite adult beverage in her hand. Diet Dr. Pepper, cherry, and a little vanilla. Her husband walks in. I need to talk, honey. Wait a minute. This doesn't happen. Does that, have, does that happen in our house? I think I got it mixed up a little bit. All right. Meeting the relational and material needs of individuals on the team does look like this. It looks like checking on Lucy because something just doesn't seem right with her. 
It means patiently and kindly working through a conflict with someone. Not avoiding them and not giving up on them as easy as that would be. It looks like a two-week supply of groceries anonymously put on the front porch of someone's house of a needy family in the church. Anonymously. It looks like going through the Bible or some other gospel-driven book that's appropriate with someone for several weeks because they're in need and you want to help. And you don't have all the answers. And you're just one step around the corner from the stuff that you're actually teaching on. And then you come around and you say, Oof, that's not a part of me either. Let's do this together. And it might look like a couple doing that. A couple's in need and another couple gets together and says, Hey, let's get together and let's, let's talk this stuff out. Let's think this stuff out before the Lord together. Let's go over the Scriptures on this area together. That's what it looks like. Now, doing this kind of relational and material need meeting, at times it can be very costly and very sacrificial, can it? Your time, your attention, your emotional and spiritual energy, it drains you. But guess what? You're a drain too on someone else. So we're all draining each other. All right, it also looks like more on the team aspect, right? Relational and material needs of the team, the team itself. So we focused on the individual, but what about the team itself, the church itself? Remember, you've got to remember, we all do, that the church is both organizational, the team, and organic individuals on the team. It's the body and it's the ear. It's both, and we've got to hold those together. So when you look at verse 32, this is talking about the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. They're not talking about individuals here. They're talking about the group. And then in two chapters earlier, when we were given normal Christianity, remember teaching and fellowship and worship and witness and all the stuff that they were doing, it was saying they didn't single out any individual there. It was they, as a team, worshipped devoted themselves to apostles' teaching and fellowship. Do you see that? No individual was singled out there. And so we need to recover that group team life. Not just you and your private quiet time. But how about us in our collective quiet time? Well, that's harder. Yeah. It doesn't seem as spiritual. Yep. It's not as exciting. Uh Uh-huh. In fact, I quit. Dad, you want to take my spot? I mean, that's what it feels like, right? Now, Redeemer purposely avoids program-driven ministry. Those of you that have been here long enough, you know that. Those of you that are just visiting, you're going you're gonna to see we, we avoid, we avoid program-driven ministry for two reasons. Number one, we want to be driven by a vision of the glory of God. In all that we do, not busyness, not busyness, and not an endless array of felt needs driving us. Okay? Second reason is this. 
We want you home. And we want you in the community. Not every day up here. We want you at home and we want you in the community. Believe in the gospel. Well, what does it look like to believe the gospel in my home? What does it look like to believe the gospel in the community? That's where we want you. And we want you to be an instrument in your home for the Lord. And we want you to be an instrument for the Lord in your community. So that's why we're not driven by that. In fact, Luther, he used to lock the doors of the church on Sunday night and says, get out of here. Don't come back here. So whatever, this is my point. So whatever we do do here, what little visional stuff we do set up here, we do for your gospel-driven growth. We do for gospel-driven relationships. We do for gospel-driven ministry. It is for you. So we got CE. Go to CE. We've got midweek. All ages, all ages CE, all ages in community groups. There's women's Bible studies. There's a men's get together once a month. And we're trying to see what the Lord will do with that. There's fun and snacks and stump the pastor once a month. There are organizational stuff that we can do together. Now, what if what if we all take a step and participate in the life of the church as a team? Learning together, growing together. Helping each other, being known, laughing, having fun, praying for each other. Not just in our quiet times, but in the general areas of the church. What would happen? We'd live as a team. So what steps do you need to take to do that? Now, Redeemer purposely avoids a community-driven ministry. What do communities do? They do what you're doing right now. Sit. And they do another thing that you're not doing right now, which is talk. Sit and talk. Nothing gets done. So we have an approach to ministry that's based on action. So we're avoiding committees, and we call them ministry teams. And that ministry team that takes place in the church, it's focused around one thing and one thing only. Action. So when we find ministries that need to be done in the church under worship, nurture, and witness, those are the three categories. There are teams. What is a team to to move forward worship? Well, here are certain teams, actions that need to be done. Nurture, certain teams, actions that need to be done. Witness, certain teams, actions need to be done. Now, you all are all gifted in different ways. And what if, again, us as a team, we learn and take steps towards doing this together, what it would look like? Well, we'd start living like a team. Learning from each other. Being trained together and equipped together. Failing together. Sinning against each other. That's what happens. And that's learning to live like a team. The first church wasn't a team because they looked so good. They were a team... Because they believed the gospel so well. Together. You can have a fight with somebody and believe the gospel in the midst of it. Or you could walk out. There's one other area I've got to talk about, and that's the material needs of the team. This is the church's mission and ministry. What's he going to say on this? I'm going to say two quick things. 
What's the biblical standard for giving to the church? Anyone? The biblical standard for giving to the church? 5%, 10%, 50%, all of it. 10% gross. You know what it is? Glad generosity. Glad generosity because the gospel has set us free to give generously. I've been set free. You've been set free to give generously because the gospel is all about God giving his son. And in giving his son, he's given us everything. And as he's given us everything, when we get that and it gets into us, we become generous givers. So the overflow of the grace of God hits a sinner's life, flows out of their life. And they say, I'm going to put God on display by giving. And when a generous giver gives, you know what he's saying? This is true about God. When a generous giver helps a person relationally and materially, what that person hears, whether they realize it or not, this is what is true about God. He is like this for you. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is putting on display the riches and the grace and the glories of the kingdom of God. Gladly giving. Generously giving. Okay, so what, well, there's one other thing. Because also, it's glad generosity because it's God's provision in the first place. As they say in Texas, it ain't yours to begin with. It's not mine to begin with. Okay. And the giver gets the glory... Now, what's, what about tithing? Well, there's, this is a quick response, huh? What about tithing? Well, tithing was done in the Old Testament. It was 10% of your income, or your cattle, or your fruit, or your grain, or your land, left for meeting the needs, individuals, relationally material, in the church, okay? Now, that Old Testament practice has now bumped into generous giving and glad generosity, Because this Old Testament practice is entry point into giving. When it grows, it matures into the standard of generous giving, glad generosity. So the church throughout history has always affirmed 10%, has always affirmed the tithe, always. So that's always the entry point. But the standard is glad generosity. What is that? Is that 10.5%? Eleven? Come on, give me something! Okay, here's what I'll give you. Sell all you have and bring it right to my feet. That's the easy way. The heart's more challenging. The heart is more challenging. Okay? All right, we have to end. How in the world do you do this? How do you live like a team with a generous heart? How do you do it? The proposition is given to us in verse 33. The picture is given to us in Barnabas. The proposition is this. How? By great grace. Do you see what's happening there? They're preaching. And what are they preaching? This great message. What's the message? The resurrection. You see this? They're preaching the resurrection. While they're preaching the resurrection, great grace is unleashed. And when great grace is unleashed, generous hearts were made. So propositionally, how do you live like a team with a generous heart? By getting the aha of great grace. When you get the aha, you become a generous heart. Pictorially, though, I think it looks better. Look at Barnabas. Who is he? He's a Levite. Levites were given what? They were given cities, certain cities. But they also, in certain cities, they were given certain pasture land. 
And Levitical, Levitical law says this, that may not be sold, for it is their possession forever. So a Levite was given cities and pasture land that may not be sold forever. And here we have a Levite selling his land. No, 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 he can't do that. It's his possession forever. How can he do that? Because the resurrection changed everything. Because at the resurrection, Barnabas realized he owns the whole world. So I can give. See, what Barnabas has realized is that those Levite lands and Abraham's promised land, those were all skeletal pictures of the portrait of what Jesus accomplishes in the resurrection when a new heavens and a new earth is made, when the whole world is claimed by a king. And all those who are part of this new creation, this recreation, you get the whole world. You inherit everything. And so Barnabas, he hears the resurrection. Great grace is shown upon him because he's like, I own everything. So he looks around and he says, who needs? I own everything. I've got everywhere my eyes land. It's greater than Abraham. Everywhere my eyes set. Paradise. Paradise. And it's mine. The love of God, mine. Divine favor and forgiveness, mine. Eternal prizes and treasures and glories and inheritance and riches and relationships in heaven. The knowledge of God, communion and fellowship with God. The treasure trove of God's grace. Mine, mine, all of it mine. So he gives. Do you see that picture? The way you and I live like a team with a generous heart is we get the aha of great grace but is recognizing I own everything. And now I can give and I can give some more and I can give. I own everything. Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, his wife, They would sell, but would never give away the eggs from their chickens. Even their relatives. Ah, ah, ah. You got to buy that. It became to be an area in which some folks in the church, some folks in their family, some folks in the community started labeling them greedy and grasping. They accepted their criticisms, the Spurgeons, without defending themselves. When Mrs. Spurgeon died, the full story was revealed. The profits from those chickens of selling those eggs supported two elderly widows their whole lives. And no one knew. Now, brothers and sisters, when you own everything... You'll put up with anything.
And you'll live like a team with a generous heart no matter what. Amen.